Uh, we're not going to read from Luke 10. I made a last-minute change, so that's, that's, that's on me. Luke 10 was what I sent to our, our good bulletin typist. Uh, but we're going to read from Romans 3. That will help us more with the sermon this morning. Romans chapter 3. In the Pew Bible, it's page 1196, where the Apostle Paul writes about faith and works, and that's something that James writes about as well. And we'll have occasion to compare in the sermon what they're saying. So Romans chapter 3, we'll read that chapter. And Paul is in the midst of a longer discussion here, um, talking about the value of God's relationship with the Jews. And then he talks about Gentiles and how both Jew and Gentile are under sin. So we're going to pick up that discussion at chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. <clears throat> they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we not then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So far the reading of Holy Scripture. Let's, in preparation, please turn with me to the letter of James. James chapter 2, in the Pew Bible, page 1289. Our text this morning will be chapter 2, verses 14 through the end, through verse 26. So we're carrying on our series of sermons in this letter. Last time we dealt with the first half of chapter 2. And then James writes in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So far, the reading of our text, in response to the preaching of the gospel, we will sing hymn 28, hymn 28, the stanzas 5, 6, and 7, and that hymn is about the relationship between faith and works, so I invite you to pay careful attention to the lyrics as we sing hymn 28. 5, 6, and 7. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, we arrive at probably the most famous section of James's letter. 
the section that gave Luther sleepless nights, where the author of the letter says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's verse 18. Now, you can understand how this verse and this section upset Luther, who had discovered from Paul in Romans 3, which we read, that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul's teaching, as I think most of us will know, had led Luther, who had long believed that a person was justified by works and faith, as taught by the Roman Catholic Church, it led Luther to see that a person is justified by faith alone in God's eyes, and that works were not required for justification. This was the debate of the Reformation. And now James, in our text, seems to contradict Paul and go against the Reformation idea of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so, you can understand that our text has been the subject of a great deal of controversy ever since the days of Luther. So, what we're going to do is what we've been doing all along and try to understand James in its context. Context, as always, makes all the difference. James wasn't writing to the churches in the Reformation. He was writing to the churches in the dispersion, he tells us, chapter 1, verse 1. That means this was a time of, of persecution, that the church had been scattered, dispersed, a time of trouble where everyday Christians were going through trials of many kinds. James writes about that in chapter 1, verse 2. Some of those trials included poverty for the believers, chapter 1, verse 9, and again in chapter 2, verse 3. James even says that most Christians, most church members were on the, the poorer side of life. Only a few were on the wealthy side of life. They were often in need of help. But to give that help in that context was risky and it was costly. In the dispersion, it was a time when some believers, in order to avoid trouble with their neighbors, neighbors like the rich landowners or merchants or governing officials, such, some Christians were tempted to hold back their helping hand from their needy brothers and sisters. They didn't want to invite persecution. For those Christians and for James, the question was very real and very urgent, is faith without works enough? Will trusting in Jesus without helping my needy brother still serve my salvation? Those are the questions of our text, and I proclaim to you this word of the Lord, faith without obedient acts of love does not save. Faith without obedient acts of love does not save. We'll see the useless faith of demons and then the useful faith of true believers. 
Well, James brings up his main point in this section right off the hop in verse 14. He writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question expecting the answer no. Well, James's questions raise questions of our own. What does he mean by faith exactly? And what does James mean by works? Then it's helpful for us to, and important for us to see that James has been writing about these concepts already since the start of the letter in chapter 1. He mentions, for example, uh, works or deeds under different, uh, using different language and different terms in chapter 1, verse 22. There he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. To do is a synonym for a work. He comes back to that in verse 25 of chapter 1. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He's describing works, just using different verbs. And closer to our text in chapter 2, James is still talking about obeying acts of obedience to God's law of liberty when he says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So for quite a while in this letter, James has been talking about deeds of obedience to the law of the Lord, examples of which he's laid out in at the end of chapter 1, bridling our tongues, caring for widows and orphans, keeping ourselves unstained from the world's sins, and, chapter 2, not showing partiality uh, to the poor. These are the various works or deeds that James has spoken about so far. So, when he writes now about works, he's simply writing about obedience to God's law, the loving of God and the loving of neighbor or to summarize it as I have in the theme, obedient acts of love. That's what James means by works, obedient acts of love. Okay, what then does James mean by faith? Well, he's also mentioned that in chapter 1, starting at verse 2. Count it all joy when your faith is tested, James has written. And then he says, the testing of our faith produces steadfastness or perseverance, which over time, he tells us, makes our faith complete or perfect, whole and full. And then James has told us, look, as you're going through trials and you feel the need for wisdom, pray to God for wisdom, chapter 1, verse 6, one, verse six. and pray for that in faith. Then in chapter 2, he gives us a definition of faith. Verse 1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So what is faith for James? Well, faith is what it is elsewhere in Scripture. It's the act of believing. 
believing the implanted word of truth, chapter 1, verse 18, and embracing Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. So when you go back to chapter 1 and, and read it carefully, you see that James has been sewing these two threads into his letter, the thread of faith and the thread of works. And now in our text, he, he brings those two threads together and he asks, what good is faith without works? Of what value is it for a person to say that he or she believes in Jesus but has no interest in obeying the word or the command or the law of Jesus? Notice that we are talking about a claim to faith. Verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Some people reading our text think the issue is a contest between works and faith, between being saved by works or being saved by faith, but that's not the issue at all. James is concerned about two apparent kinds of faith. Faith without works, so faith without obedient acts of love, versus faith with obedient acts of love, specifically loving the neighbor. That's the issue in the churches to which James is writing, and apparently some people were professing faith in Christ but showed no concern for their neighbor. Some people were, to put it in chapter 1's words, some people were listeners of the Word, so they were in church on, on the Lord's Day, but they were not doers of the Word. And James is asking now, is that legit? Is that acceptable to God? Is a faith like that something that will save a person? It's an important question. We're talking about salvation. It's important also today, for there are people today, they're not hard to find, who easily claim, who say they are followers of Jesus, who confess Him as Savior, but who do not obey Him as Lord. The example that James gives in our text is about failing to help a truly needy neighbor, someone who comes to your door without food or clothing. Apparently, that kind of thing could happen in James's day. It's hard to imagine that happening in our time, and it's harder to imagine someone calling himself a Christian actually turning someone away who's in that kind of a condition. But what about the other examples James mentions just before our text, back in verse 11? Examples of obedience to the law, examples of uh, works of love. James specifically mentions the seventh and the sixth commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill. Those are commandments dealing with your neighbor, with neighbor love. Those commandments are quite relevant still today, aren't they? How many people today identify themselves as believers but continue to have sex outside of marriage? Who think nothing of living with someone 
who don't have a problem with homosexuality. Or sixth commandment, how many people say they are Christian but think nothing of voting for a political party that makes no bones about promoting the killing of babies in the wombs of their mother? Parties that insist that such a right to kill is a human right. Some Christians who claim to be Christians don't have an issue with abortion itself. Those are the more pressing issues of our society at the moment. Can I be a true believer and not obey God's commandment to be sexually pure inside and outside of marriage? Can I, am I a real Christian if I don't do that? Can I be a true believer and participate in or support the aborting of babies or to support a male transitioning to a female or vice versa as if such a thing were possible? We have to realize, brothers and sisters, our society is on the cusp of demanding such things of all of its citizens, including us Christians. It's currently considered hateful to offer thoughts which oppose those ideas. If you were to say in the public square that changing your gender is wrong and unhealthy, you would be accused of being hateful at the least. And according to our government, which is working on a bill, I wonder if we all realize that, Bill C-6, it's past third reading now, very soon we will all have to agree with this new truth, the truth being that gender is all in our mind and gender is changeable at will. That's the truth that the government is putting forward and they demand that we support it. It soon could become illegal and very costly to render help to one of our neighbors by just counseling that neighbor, whether it's a child or a teen or an adult, counseling that neighbor to keep their gender, to not cut things off which God has given, or to counsel someone to give up their same-sex ways. That's going to be illegal if the government has its way. And then we're going to be faced with a question preachers, elders, but also members of the churches, parents, will we do that? To love our neighbor, to obey the sixth commandment not to murder, means that on the positive side we seek to protect them from harm as much as we can, to do what is truly best for them. And God says, the best is that they remain the gender I created them to be and that they preserve sexual intimacy for a member of the opposite sex within the context of marriage. Will you and I show our faith by daring to say those things out loud for the good of others and to counsel our neighbor to follow that will of the Lord? Will we do that? It's going to cost us. Or will we, like the example in our text, send somebody on their way with all kinds of pious talk but with no real help. James is very forthright 
and plain spoken in his conclusion, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You can't get around that, nor can I. You can say you believe in Jesus all you want. You can sing it from the rooftops. You can claim to be a Christian all you like, but if that claim is not backed up with loving acts of obedience to the law of the Lord, with a true love toward God and true love toward neighbor, that faith you say you've got, it's as dead as a doornail. And all you're doing is fooling yourself. It's even worse than the useless faith of demons. James brings that up in verse 19 as an example. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe. Did you know that demons have faith? Faith of a certain kind, anyway. Demons believe the facts about God. They believe He's one God. They believe He's one God in three persons. No demon would doubt that. They know Jesus is God. Think of all, all the demons that we encounter in the Gospels coming into contact with Christ during His earthly ministry and how many of those demons couldn't restrain themselves from shouting out His true identity, I know who you are. You are the Son of God. And Jesus had to say, be quiet. Demons believe lots of true things about God. In fact, you could go through most of the Apostles' Creed and the demons would say, I know full well that God is the creator of heaven and earth. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Father's only begotten Son. I believe He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. I believe Jesus was crucified. I was there, the demons can say. I saw those things. I know that Jesus has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And I know He's going to come back to judge the living and the dead. And that's what makes me shudder with fear. The demons know all these things and many more facts about God and about Jesus. And they have the good sense to tremble in their boots and shake with dread from head to toe because they know since these things are true, their days are numbered. Soon the demons will be thrown into the lake of fire and be forever in torment in God's wrath. That's why they're trembling. James's point is that some people who identify themselves as Christians all too often have the same kind of faith as the demons. They're convinced that God exists. They do not doubt that God is one, even three in one. They can say yes and amen to all the facts about God, but they do not honor God. They do not obey the Lord's commandments. The faith of demons is knowing the truth about God, but having no love for God, no relationship with Jesus Christ, no desire to see the Lord's name hallowed, and no desire to see His kingdom come. That kind of faith, says James, is useless or 
worse, he describes it as foolish. Because while the demons know that the result of their so-called faith is eternal death, and so they shudder, the truth is many so-called believers are in la-la land. They've got no sense of fear or trembling. They actually take it for granted that after they die, they're going to go to heaven because they say to themselves, after all, I have faith, I believe. But the Holy Spirit, through James, is saying to you and me, no, you don't. No, you don't. If that's what you've got as faith, that faith cannot save you. Acknowledging facts about God to be true is nothing more than the demons do, and demons do not have true faith. If you truly believed in Jesus, the Lord of glory, you would do what no demon will ever do or ever want to do. You would love Jesus with all of your heart. And if you love Jesus with all of your heart, you would want to be transformed into the new creatures He's creating us to be, as James wrote about in chapter 1, verse 18. You would want to be acting like Christ. If you loved Christ, you would love His fellow church, His, his, his church and your fellow Christians, and you would love all people besides that. You would love even your enemies, and you would show that in deeds in deeds of obedience to the law of the Lord. Demons don't do that. And people who claim they have faith don't do that. That's the litmus test. True faith acts. True faith acts in love toward God and toward our neighbor. James is simply clarifying what God has been teaching all throughout the Bible. It's not really a new concept. Because God loves you and me and has entered into a relationship with us as father to children, true faith involves loving God back. It involves acting as his sons and daughters. The Lord taught this already through Moses. Remember the two great summary commandments from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. I quoted them earlier as Jesus quoted them from Moses. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's always been about love. And love always shows itself in actions. In fact, Jesus underlined the necessity for good works, for obedience, when he described Christians as trees. He uses the analogy of trees that bear good fruit. He says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. The fruit is simply obedience to God's commandments. If you disobey God's commandments, that's bad fruit. You're not a Christian. If your life is filled with obedience to God's commandments, that's good fruit. You are a Christian. He taught the same in the parable of the sower, that famous parable where the seed is sown in four different locations, four different 
uh, soils, four different responses to the seed. Three of those responses, they look at first like faith, but they turn out to be fakes, exactly what James is writing about. But there's one that is the real deal, the seed that lands on good soil. What happens to that seed? Jesus says, those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. That's the, the, the fruit. That is the good works that God is looking for and James is writing about. True faith obeys God in demonstrating or showing love even when it hurts, when it costs. James is mindful that the churches he's writing to are in this dispersion, scattered because of persecution. He knows it's going to be resisted by the world around if Christians help other Christians. He knows it's, it's going to be tough for believers. And there's going to be a temptation to just say to fellow church members in the comfort of a worship setting or a Bible study where the world is not directly involved or observing things, to say there, yeah, I believe, I feel for you, but then not take any action in public which would expose you as a Christian. That temptation looms large for us, maybe a little bit larger as Canadian Christians. Canadians never like to stand out anyway. Now, as Canadian Christians, we've got a double whammy. We have the strong temptation to just duck down, to keep our head low, and, and not let anybody observe us to be Christian. Maybe I should just stay invisible as a Christian by doing nothing to arouse suspicion and by basically ignoring my duty to, lo to love. That is a temptation for us in Canada. We don't like to risk exposure to public scrutiny or embarrassment. But James says, take a look at Abraham. Take a look at Rahab. There you see true faith. There you see trust in God showing itself in actions. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. That's the example James points to. The long-awaited son promised uh, to him by God. How do you think that went for Abraham? Come on, Isaac. Come with me. Going on a journey to worship God. And all along he knows he has to sacrifice. He has to kill his son. Don't you think that, that hurt Abraham mightily? to make that trek and obey that command, to take his son, the son he had waited for for so long, the son he loved so much, take Isaac up a mountain, tie him on an altar, pick up a knife with the intent to snuff out the life of his boy. He did that, Abraham did, out of love for God because his God had given him a command, a command he couldn't understand. But still, 
It was a command, and he trusted his God that his God could somehow bring Isaac back from the dead and still fulfill all the promises the Lord had made to him. When Abraham raised that knife to kill his boy, he showed, he gave the evidence that he truly loved the Lord more than anything and anyone else in this world. He gave evidence that his faith in God was real. And that, in a nutshell, is what James is saying in verse 21. When he writes that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. James is very much aware that Abraham was saved by faith in God, for he quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. He does that in verse 23, just the same as Paul does in Romans 4 to make the same point. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it is true when you see verse 23 and verse 21 so close together, it creates confusion, and especially when you read Romans 3. And we want to ask, well, which is it now? Was Abraham justified by faith, or was he justified by works? Was Abraham justified by trust or by obedience? And the answer is that Abraham was declared right in God's eyes by faith. That's verse 23. But that faith, it proved itself or it made itself known in works. That's verse 21. And that's how James uses the word justified there. That word justified can be used with different nuances throughout Scripture, and this is the nuance here. You could translate, Abraham was shown to be righteous. His action in sacrificing Isaac was the visible proof of that invisible reality of true faith in his heart. This was the evidence. So if you get troubled between what Paul writes and what James writes, you have to remember that James and Paul are tackling different problems. Paul, in the letter to the Romans, he lays stress on faith in Christ as the, the ground or the basis for our justification. James isn't talking about that at all. James is stressing how faith can be known to be real or genuine. And that's why he lays stress on works. Works show or demonstrate that faith is the real deal. Paul, on the other hand, is dealing with justification in God's courtroom. Exactly how does that come about? That's his concern. But James is not dealing with that. He's dealing with sanctification in everyday life here on earth. Paul was dealing with some church members who thought that their works combined with their faith would earn them salvation. To which Paul says, no, that's not the case at all. Christ is your Savior, and you can only benefit from Christ by true faith. Full stop. Works come after. James was dealing with a different problem. James was dealing with church members who thought this, that faith without works would be enough to make me saved. To which James says, no, true faith is never without works. It can never be without works. Abraham showed his faith 
through the trial of offering Isaac, and that proved the reality of his faith. As James says in verse 22, Abraham's faith was completed by his works. That is, through this trial of sacrificing Isaac and his response, Abraham's faith, it was strengthened, it was developed, it was brought to maturity. And it's the same thing going on with Rahab, James's other example. Only her example shows neighbor love big time. Uh, Abraham, the example of Abraham, showed love for God, right? There really wasn't any other neighbors observing. It was an act between him and the Lord. But with Rahab, her actions directly affected her neighbors. She was helping neighbors, much like the Samaritan in Jesus' famous parable. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, whom, whom no one would have guessed was a true believer in Yahweh, the God of Israel, not even those Israelite spies who came to her door would have guessed. Nevertheless, she showed her faith. She showed it in her actions of helping those helpless Israelites. She received those two messengers. She hid them from the guards. She lied about their whereabouts, and she sent them off on their way. Actions always speak louder than words, and her actions came with the highest possible risk. She was betraying her own city and king, her own countrymen, her own gods. If they had caught her, it would have been treason and she would have been put to death. She and probably all her family. She risked all of that to help the cause of the one true God, to help two of God's servants at that moment who were in grave danger. She, she helped two neighbors whom she regarded as brothers in faith. And at that moment when she acted, consequences didn't matter. Just like Abraham, she didn't know how it would turn out. She didn't. Abraham didn't know that the Lord would hold back his hand at the last moment and prevent him killing Isaac. Nor did Rahab know that helping these spies would not lead to any difficulties for her with the king. Everything was at risk, and she put it all on the line because she had trust in the Lord. Well, says James, that is faith. This is the faith that saves a person. This is the real McCoy. Do you have that kind of faith, beloved? Do you have a faith that works, a faith that loves God and loves neighbor and isn't afraid to show it in deeds? It's becoming risky in our country to show your faith in actions by truly doing the will of God and showing love to a neighbor. Are we ready? Are you and I willing to put that risk forward. To be the good Samaritan. Think of what he was risking. He stopped to help that traveler. The robbers could have come back at any time. He risked associating with a Jew and what his fellow Samaritans would think of him because they thought the Jews were pariah. He risked spending time and money on this fellow, this stranger, 
That kind of faith is like the faith of Rahab. It's like the faith of Abraham. It's a highly useful faith, don't you think? It's useful to your neighbor who needs your help. It's useful in the service of God's kingdom who advances His kingdom through your loving obedience and mine. And that kind of faith, it's useful for our personal salvation, for faith acting in loving obedience to God's law. It's proof that our faith is genuine, proof that the Holy Spirit lives in you and me, proof that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so proof that you have, you really have everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven with Jesus the Lord. Faith without works is dead, and that ought to make us shudder and repent. But faith with works, faith with deeds, that is alive, it's vibrant, it's wonderful, it's useful and beneficial, and it's bursting with joy and excitement. Excitement for what? For all that God has in store for you and me and all His people. Amen.